Hello, listeners. Today on the podcast, I've got quite the impressive guest. This gorgeous woman is based in Ottawa and is both a full-time mommy and a full-time student. She has done a lot of sex worker advocacy in the past, both domestically and internationally, and I'm really glad we um, spoke about politics a bit in this episode. I know everyone will enjoy this recording I had with the highly intellectual and heartwarming Natalie Lefebvre. There's a lot of people who are trying things that they've never tried before. Sex! Why do you think people don't see it as work? I don't know. I think it's just too much stigma. What do you mean we can't just go tell people? The vast uh, complexity of human sexuality. The escort. Deconstructed. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Natalie. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. In my dingy little Airbnb I got. Oh my. <laughs> and I like everyone. I lugged my suitcase here because I had like extra time to kill yesterday. So I was walking down the street with this huge thing and it was snowing. Like I live the life of luxury. I really for do. <laughs> Honestly, it's really not that bad. No, it's not. It's just slippery and I wear yes. Uggs and it's like an eraser basically. <laughs> for you oh please we're all canadian we know the struggle yes we do um so tell me how did you end up picking your working name um so i wanted a last name that was typically french canadian but non-identifiable so le five is a very common french last name and natalie with an h so natalie is actually my legal middle name and so i chose my my it's a legal name for me didn't take that much time then you were just like bam bam two seconds done <laughs> bang bang exactly how long have you kept that name i've had this name since i started oh, and wow. so i started working um as an escort 10 years ago i guess at this point and i've used the same name ever since did you have a party did i have a party an anniversary party oh, no honestly i'm trying to think when did i start i think my 10 year anniversary in sex work will actually be this upcoming may so may of 2020 because i started in 2010 so it's not quite 10 years but almost and you're absolutely right i should have a party at the very least a very cool huge cake yes maybe some boobs on there i don't know yeah (laughs) nipples with like swedish berries that would be cool (laughs) yeah I'm, i'm gonna wait and find out i would come i would come to that party all right i'll invite you to ottawa you should definitely come um how did you so it's 10 years ago, how did you decide to get involved in the industry? That's a really good question. So at the time I was pursuing my undergraduate degree and I was working full time as a bartender, um, which was well paid work, but very difficult labor intensive work. And so I was in school full time and I was working full time. So I would be in school frequently from like, you know, around 8.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. And I would often work the evening shift from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. or midnight or sometimes 2 a.m. Yeah, I was going to say 2 a.m. usually. Usually. That was Friday, Saturday was definitely 2 a.m. But if I worked the weekdays, we usually closed around 11, which wasn't too bad. Nonetheless, I was completely and utterly exhausted living that lifestyle of like Mm -hmm. working on my feet and running around six, seven hours a day and then being at school during the day. And I was also a volunteer at the time because I thought it was really important to build my resume and to do volunteer work. So I was complaining about this to one of the patrons at the bar whose name was Guy. And Guy was a really lovely guy. 
and we were just chatting about it. <laughs> it's not like a pun, but it's not a way. He was a lovely guy. I'm sorry. I know it's true though. Guy was a lovely guy. He totally <laughs> was, and I have very, very fond memories of his wrinkly face. <laughs> like very fond memories. And basically, I was complaining about this, and I was like, "Oh, this really sucks. Like, I don't know what to do because I needed to make the money to pay for tuition." And he actually looked at me, and I was, you know, 19, 20 at the time. And he was like, "Well, have you ever thought of being an escort?" What? Yes. And I was like, "You." Fucker, like yeah, I think that's a normal reaction. Oh my god, I was just so you know, I was it's a, like an I, inadvertent can I fuck you? Uh but he and I never did, actually. Still, it's I a know. weird proposition. No, but he yeah, so it totally was. And at the time I was super angry. I basically kicked him out of the bar and I'm like, I'm not like that, etc. etc. So I had a lot of um internalized stigma around sex work and the work that they do and who sex workers are. Because of the media. Because of the media, precisely. Mm-hmm. And so I kicked him out, and then the next day he showed up. And he was like, listen, I'm so sorry about yesterday. I just want you to know that I'm actually a client of a sex worker at the moment. Ah. Like he didn't use sex worker at the time. The term he used was, I'm trying to think. I think he said escort. Like he's like, I'm, you know, I'm a regular of an escort and I've been seeing escorts you know, for the past 20 years. And I just wow, think that changes the narrative so much instantly. I know. And he was just like, this is, this is why, you know, I just think that like, I've gotten to know you over the past year that you've worked here. I think you would be really suitable to being an escort. And then I just jumped in and I had so, so many trippy. questions. I had so many questions for him. So I was like, you know, how did you get into this? Like, who did you meet? How did you meet them? What is it like? Like, what are the, what are the women like that you've met? And it turns out he had also seen men. Oh, very cool. Yeah, as a man who has sex with men. So he had seen women and had seen men in the industry. So I had like a million questions. And he answered all of them. That's great. In great depth <laughs> and in detail. And then he recommended that I look into the Canadian Escort Recommendation Board, which at the time was CERB. Okay. Which was a very popular platform, which is now Lila, which is a okay. platform that's very popular. Well, it's not popular anymore, actually. But um, it, it was popular for a time when it was known as CERB. So CERB was kind of like the Toronto Escort Recommendation Board, but it only allows positive reviews. Is so it, it was a recommendation board or a review board? A recommendation okay. board. So there was you're not allowed to post negative reviews of okay. providers on CERB. Um, and it's now Lila. Okay. Anyway, so he recommended this website, which many Ottawa-based providers will know about. And some, I think it's mostly popular in Ottawa and Ottawa. (laughs) I think it's like meant to be Canadian, but I'm pretty sure it's like Ottawa and the East Coast. And that's pretty much it. Um, and, And yeah, so he recommended I go on this website. And so I contacted a few escorts from this website. And I was like, listen, I'm really curious about this industry. I'd really love to get into sex work, but I want to do it in a way that's safe. Can I book an appointment with you, but not for sexual services, but just to like go out for coffee? And can I ask you some questions? I'm happy to pay your full rate, whatever. So two of the three workers that I contacted didn't get back to me, but then a third person did. And so I met her and her and I actually became good friends. We're we're still in each other's lives now. And she kind of helped me. So within like the day that he mentioned like, hey, why don't you become an escort? And the time that I actually saw my first client was six months. Okay. So I took six months to think about it. That's prudent. Yeah. To do my research. I, you know, 
I trolled this Canadian escort recommendation board and read everything I possibly could and really thought through, like, is this something I feel comfortable with? Did you feel that was like the only research you could really do just for actual information wise, since you were trying to do research clearly about entering an industry? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Canadian escort recommendation board was one of the only sources of information I found at the time, many sex workers 10 years ago didn't have their own websites and oh, they yeah, only no. advertised on recommendation and review boards. Many only, ad- like Backpage didn't exist then. Leolis obviously didn't exist then. Many of the advertising platforms that we use today didn't exist. A lot of people, and when I toured back when I first started, I mean, we still advertised in newspapers. And so I advertised my services in newspapers when I went to the East Coast. No way. Yeah, totally. And so... Yeah, I mean, the the industry was quite different then in terms of what it is now. Especially screening-wise, I imagine. Very much so, although I think I still pretty much use very similar screening now as I did back then. I still require references. I required references back then, uh, phone conversations and things like that. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think that you absolutely did the right thing by number one, not giving up on the first woman that did not get back to you because mm-hmm. you got to play the odds. Also, reaching out and offering to compensate them for the consultation they're giving you, essentially. I think a lot of women reach out and say, can I take you to dinner and pick your brain? And it's kind of like you must know like a lot of people do ask. And instead of doing what I need to do to on my business or take care of myself or like whatever, um, I'm asked, I'm being asked to work for free. And so even if it's not the full rate, cause the rate might be high, offer something. And I feel like it's going to be very difficult for most women to say no, because I think we're all looking to support each other at the end of the day. Really? I definitely agree. And I believe recognizing that mentorship is a form of labor and then compensating that labor is really important. Yeah. And if you can't like, you could pick like a different method if you can't do whatever, you think the standard is like just working with people but at least recognizing that yeah it will be a lot of work on their their and it's going to result in you earning more Mm -hmm. among other things Mm -hmm. um so did you keep this to yourself initially apart from ghee that's a good question as well um i kept it to myself initially I did eventually tell my parents quickly after. So when I saw my first client, my first first client ever was actually not the greatest experience. So I've since realized that the kind of services that I like to offer and what I like to provide really is the girlfriend experience. I really do like to sit down and chat and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or have a glass of wine and sit and chat and get to know someone before we become intimate. And my first client ever, within five minutes of him walking in the door, I was naked and we were having sex. And that was really intense Was that you that started it? Or the person was just like pushy? Not that the person was pushy. It was just very clear. Like retrospectively, I can think back and realize that this person was very interested in having a sexual experience with me. And that's really what they were going for. So they wanted to fuck. They wanted to have sex. And that's what I provided. But that's not what I enjoy providing the most. So I love to fuck. I love to have sex. But I also love to get to know people. And I really do want to get to know people before I do all of those things. You heard it here first. She likes to fuck. I'm sorry. I have to. (laughs) 
good one. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, the second client that I had via sex work um, was was much more attuned to that and and was very similar to me we had amazing chemistry you know we sat and chatted and I I just felt so elated and so when we were intimate it was a really pleasurable experience for me um but so insofar as who I told I did tell my stepfather first whom I consider to be my father so I told my stepfather first and you know what his response was he laughed. I don't know. He literally looked at me and he was like, well, I'm not surprised. You know, when you started doing all of that research about gays and lesbians, you told us that you were queer and now you're doing all this research on sex work and you tell us you're a sex worker. <laughs> and that was his That's reaction. just like where that goes. <laughs> that's really, he was like, I'm not surprised. And I was okay, like, okay, well, I guess that's like a good reaction. Totally. And I was just like all right, this is cool. Like I can, I can deal with this. And then I asked him like, how should I tell mom? Because my mother works in corrections. Okay. Um, so my mother works in corrections and I know, uh, so she works in a provincial institution, which means that the people that she interacts with for the most part are, you know, people who are homeless, like administrative justice or injustice, like people who are in jail because they haven't paid fines, people who are in jail for like minor non-violent mostly administrative offenses which means that in fact a lot of people that she was interacting with in the context of her work were sex workers specifically street-based sex workers so I was kind of just like how do I tell this to mom knowing do you know what charge they're mostly there for back then um so at the time it could be anything from jaywalking to uh, communicating for the purposes of prostitution, so Section okay. 2121J. Of, this was before 2014. Yes, this was before 2014. Um, and so they would be um, in jail mostly for communicating or um, for other minor offenses such as like traffic light violations or jaywalking or Did you put in jail for that i guess if you can't pay the fine if you can't pay the fine eventually yes you're subpoenaed to appear in court if you don't appear in court then you're criminalized it's this like awful cycle of criminalization and it's also ultimately just the criminalization of poverty right a mm-hmm. lot of people are poor that one's a north american ailment it sure is yeah and um, so, yeah, I was I was hesitant to tell my mother, you know, and when I first told my mother, yeah, she didn't react very well initially, but it didn't take long before she kind of came around to the idea and was like, well, where do you work? And so I invited her to Ottawa and she saw my in-call. I'm sorry, where are you from then? I'm from Quebec City. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, I'm from Quebec City. So I invited her to Ottawa and she came to my in-call and she helped me put up curtains <laughs> because I needed, like, I wish I had to put curtains up. So she helped me put up my curtains. It's a great place to start. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm like, you're, you're in a really pragmatic way helping me set up a place where I have sex for money. This is nice. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it, she was like, this is a really nice space. And I was like, I know, right? This is where my clients come. There are no knives. You know, like, I'm like, hey, mom, like, How I'm do very you eat safe. apples. <laughs> yes. I don't eat apples on my in-call. <laughs> what do you do at your in-call? No, I'm joking. <laughs> Strictly cucumbers. 
<laughs> I actually have one in the fridge and nothing oh, else. Do you really? Wine and cucumber. Show me, show me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, it was like this really super positive experience. And she was like, well, this isn't so bad. And now when I talk to my mom about it, in a general sense, she was like, oh, oh, Nathalie, you know. And then she's like, if I was your age, I would do this too. And <laughs> Yes. And then she says, do you know there was once a man who offered to pay for my house? Oh, wow. Yeah. So she talks about these experiences that she had where she was That's so cool. Yes. I completely agree. And I recognize that I'm really lucky. Like I'm, I'm really lucky to have parents that are so accepting. Mind you, I don't really give them much of a choice. Like I fight with them a lot. <laughs> I think that's universal, right? Okay. Anything that doesn't is kind of like you're on the wrong page. Right? Rebel yeah. a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you have no choice but to love me. I'm your child, you know, so <laughs> get over it. But um, yeah, I know it's great. So I don't know why, but I, since you're from Quebec, I just always assume French people would be a little bit more liberal, you know? Yeah. I guess, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Wait and see. Yeah, you'll have to interview some more French Canadians. Well, you know what would be a cool episode is like having a bunch of people that have outed themselves to their parents just all talk about that experience. That'd be really cool. That would be super cool. <laughs> so you weren't put off by that first bad experience because you, no. you, so yeah, how did that work? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, she had a bad experience. She's going to try again or like lots of people quit after that because they're like, this industry is mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I had to really think about it because it wasn't a bad experience per se in the sense that he met all of my screening requirements. He purchased my services. He was hygienic. He arrived on time. He left on time. And he asked for consent and all that stuff. He asked for consent, right? It's just in that first encounter, I was hoping to warm up to the experience a little bit it feels a little objectifying to just be like used as a blow-up doll yeah yeah at least 15 minutes talk to me like a little bit yeah just talk to me a little bit exactly so i was a little concerned that everyone would be that way and but i didn't want to base those assumptions on one encounter so i was like i need to see a few clients to get a better sense of whether this is something I want to pursue or not. And clearly that's panned out. It has. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you show your face or do you keep it anonymous? I've always blurred my face. Um, in the beginning when I started 10 years ago, truthfully, I don't know anyone who showed their face 10 years ago. I don't know if it's a more contemporary phenomenon I don't know if it's like a growing trend in the industry to show your face. But for the most part, I think 10 years ago when I started, I knew actually I knew of one person who showed their face and they had been in the industry for a very long time at that point. They were um, at least a good 15 years before I started and they're still working today and they still show their face. It's very much a career for them. um, And that's totally fine. Um, I've always blurred my face and I, I'm happy I did so, although I have moments where I definitely want to show it. Like, I think I'm on the cusp. I'm borderline. I show a lot of my face. I rare, like I blur, but almost don't blur sometimes. Like, Why is that, Natalie? I know. I'm really on the edge. I don't know. I think it's just because, um, 
such a good question. Well, it just gets like boring hiding your identity after walks. You're like, I'm proud of my identity. And the repercussions and aren't that large except the whole border thing. Well, and so that's, I guess, where having children comes into account. Yeah, that's a fair point. Because there was an escort I knew in um, on the East Coast that I was very close with who had two kids. And she's lovely. And she showed her face but not on social media. She showed her face on her website and she was outed in a very small rural community outside of St. John's and the effects on her children when other parents found out that the mother of these two boys that she had in this school, that she was a quote unquote whore, that she was a sex worker, the effects on her kids was really bad. Yeah. So her kids got teased. Your mother's a whore. Your mother's this. Your mother's that. Her husband's business was vandalized. Like, your wife's a whore. How could you possibly, like, in this small rural community? And She has clients or she wouldn't be doing it. Very much so. But people don't think about that. You know, people don't think about that. And I'm really proud of what I do. I really am. But there are people in my life, like even my mother, for example. I know I, I spoke recently about outing myself to my mother. She asked me not to tell my extended family because in um, a rural Quebec city, it's very conservative. So you were talking about how you perceive it as more liberal. It is and it's also not. Um, so I have a very traditional French-Canadian Catholic family. And I know for a fact that if I outed myself to my extended family, they wouldn't talk to me about it. I wouldn't experience the brunt of the stigma and the discrimination, but my mom would hear about it every day. Like they would ask her questions about it and, you know, like there would, it would be a really big deal for her and it would be a really big deal for them. And so she actually asked me, she was like, listen, I support what you're doing 100%. But if you tell the family, you're not going to have to deal with the backlash. You're going to tell them and drop this bomb and then go off to Ottawa. And I'm going to have to deal with it every day. It's fair. And you know what? That's totally fair, right? It's this thing like vicarious stigma where you're stigmatized by association. And I worry about that for my mom. I worry about that um, for my daughter. And so I have these hesitations, like these momentary hesitations of like, Maybe I shouldn't, you know, because this will affect ultimately more than me. Like, it will affect some people that are close to me, too. And I do worry about facial recognition software and Mm -hmm. the ability to travel to the United States because some of my most amazing trips have been in the U.S. And I I don't want to limit my abilities to travel there. So I I just kind of go, I constantly go back and forth and back and forth. And I feel that until I'm 100% certain... Until I know, like until I really, really, really know that this is the road I want to take, I'll continue kind of blurring my face. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, until you're sure because it's not that reversible. No, exactly. Though I do know some escorts that show their face and they go to the States. I don't know how that works. Me neither. I mean, it does seem like the luck of the draw every time you go to the border. Any time could be your last time. It's funny that American escorts are fine because they're citizens and it's just everyone else. Exactly. Well, do you have a preferred verbiage in regards to escorting? Um, I pref- I refer to myself as a sex worker when I'm talking to people in my everyday life, but I refer to myself as an escort when I'm talking to people within the industry because I want people to understand that I offer full service. Um, yeah, I don't know why, but like 
up until starting this podcast, I'd never really heard the word full service. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I don't know if I was like just not paying attention or maybe it was the country I was doing it in. But yeah, I never heard the words full service. Hmm. But I guess I was just always an escort. So like it was okay. never like a debate of like, are you going to do this? It's like, yeah. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Because I mean, even when I first, first started, um, there was a very distinct, like there was a difference, right? Between being full service and being a massage provider. See, I never even considered doing massages. That's oh, probably, I was already just such a how. <laughs> <laughs> so escort, if yes. you're talking to other escorts and then sex worker. Yes, I use sex worker as more of a political umbrella term. Yeah. Um, as just like a a broad it's the industry. Identity. Yeah, it's the industry. It's a broad identity and can encompass a whole bunch of different um, sectors of the industry. And usually when I'm out and about and I'm talking about sex work in a broad sense, um, I'm usually talking about it in broad ways, not necessarily about me specifically. So, Is there like a really negative word, you think, for you? Not really. Not really. If everyone's, if anyone's trying to insult you, I don't think anything will work because, like, you're just like, yeah, I am that. Yeah. And then that's like, what? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I guess for people... I'm very empowered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. I think that, yeah, you're, you're absolutely allowed to have your preferred verbiage, whatever that might be for you. But my advice is don't take offense by any words because mm-hmm. you know what you are. Um, would you, yeah, so I've been addressing this improperly in the past and I want to apologize to everyone. I guess I'll talk about it. Um, I've personally been, yeah, afraid of what would happen if escorts talked about their less than perfect childhoods or some past trauma and like, you know, we all experience past trauma and not that great times in our lives. And I was kind of worried that if I started getting escorts on here that talked about that and not just the good parts that it would be misconstrued and shown like, see, this is why we got to keep it illegal because this is what happens to people. But that's precisely the reason we need to decriminalize it so that working conditions are better and it's not able to happen. So uh, would you like to tell me something about your childhood or educational background or what led you to kind of choose to be in this industry? Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, thank you for acknowledging that because I think it's super important. It was so easy to fuck up. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's, I think it's normal to a certain extent to want to portray the, the best parts. It's because it's been so like skewed the opposite way that you almost need to go over the top in the other way, but that's not right because it's not real. Exactly. Exactly. Like the nuances of our lives are so important to capture. So the good and the bad and the fucked up and the mental health challenges and the abusive pasts and histories and the poverty, like those are all, I mean, under capitalism, we all have to work, right? We all have to make money. We all need to pay the bills. We all need to figure out ways that make the most sense for us to make ends meet. I have a quote here from Connor Habib. Oh, do it. Shout out to you. Uh, what if sex work wasn't viewed as inherently exploitative work, but viewed as work within an inherently exploitative, exploitative economic system? Yeah. That's and it. capitalism is an inherently... You exploiting your own version of labor. Yes, 100%. So we all have choices within capitalism in terms of how we sell our time, how we sell our labor, and for how much... So I recently gave a guest lecture in a university class where they asked me if, like the students that is, asked me 
this amazing question. They said, aren't you, as a sex worker, enforcing patriarchy by being a sex worker? And I said, well, I asked this. I know. I asked the students, well, because there's the sex wars and some people view sex work as a form of violence against women and all clients. Are I would women. argue the opposite. Okay, yeah. gosh, I just needed like a little context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I, I asked these students, you know, I said, how many of you have part-time jobs as students? And I'd say 90% of the students raised their hands. And I said, well, okay. And out of these people how many of you are working for minimum wage? And I'd say like 80% of the people raised their hands. And then I asked, and how many of you are women? And then, you know, it was a mostly, it was a predominantly women identified space. It was a women's studies class. And then I'd say like 70% of people raised their hands. And then I said, how many of you are working in like feminized labor? And then all of them raise their hand, like, like waitressing, the, waitressing the service industry, yes, retail, baristas, etc. And I looked at them and I said, you are all enforcing capitalism by selling your labor at market rate in terms of it being minimum wage, feminized labor. And I said, I charge $400 an hour to do something I am personally okay with labor-wise. Exactly. To do something that I'm in control of. I was like, you're selling your labor for minimum wage, which is ultimately pretty shitty. And not, yeah, not only that, it's a job that is, you know, menial work. That's yeah. rude. I'm sorry. But I don't think anyone, as, like, aspires to only be a barista for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And if you do, I mean, that's beautiful. I just think most people, that's not their dream job. Yeah. And it's, it's exploitative. Like under capitalism, ultimately there's a manager or a third party or a corporation benefiting from their labor. Whereas as a sex worker currently, I am self-employed. I don't have a manager. I've never worked for an agency. That $400 goes into my pockets and my pockets well, alone. Well, minus the taxes and all the other stuff. Yes, of yeah. course. Well, I pay HST and all that shit. I uh, I don't want to take you off this. No, no, go ahead. Well, I got uh, a client got in touch. That I haven't met. He says he's a client. Of course, I, whatever. Not the important part. Uh, he said that a huge uh, thread on one of the review boards was clients kind of talking about why our rates are so high and kind of not understanding what the cost is of being an escort. Mm-hmm. So, like, yes, we say things like we make $400 an hour or whatever, but that is then taxed. Uh, the hours we put into getting ready that day, uh, the cost of transportation, the cost of in-calls, the cost of, do you want to like just speak to your experience of what the costs actually are and how much of maybe that you actually get to keep? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, So the cost of advertising is very expensive. The cost of maintaining, owning a website is very expensive. The cost, as you said, of owning and operating your own in-call if that's what you do, or if you don't own and operate your own, you have to rent space from someone else. If you do offer in-call spaces, be it an Airbnb or a hotel or someone else's in-call, the amount of time that it takes you to attract that client that's willing to pay XYZ amount to see you as well, like just the time that you spend on Twitter, your social media accounts, advertising your services, photo shoots. The lingerie uh, too, that is like so expensive and no one even actually looks at for more than 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. The shoes, you know, depending on the market that you're appealing to, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that that come into that. And so I couldn't actually tell you 
specifically like how much of that $400 per hour actually goes into my pocket. I've never actually calculated it, but it's definitely less than that. Um, And I've heard of therapists and psychologists and other mental health professionals that talk about, you know, I charge $200 an hour, but there's only $135 an hour that actually goes into my pocket because the rest is administrative costs and costs of like the regulatory bodies and all that kind of stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if sex work was very similar. Yeah. It's pretty, it's very expensive to work independently. Yeah. And uh, when we say expensive, it's also a high emotional cost. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. not just financial. Yeah. Um, do you have any new and exciting things you're working on in the moment in regards to your brand or your personal life? In my personal life, yeah. I mean, in terms of like my my brand, I'm just I mean, I know everyone says this where I'm like, I market myself and I'm just me. <laughs> but it's actually really true in my case that I'm just very like I believe you, I can tell. I'm very me. Like this is this is who I am, this is who I want to be. And ultimately I feel that the more I'm myself the less emotionally draining my work is. Um, And so I really do like to provide an accurate idea of who I am as a person to my clients so that they they know what they're getting into. But in my personal life, I'm actually doing a degree in psychology right now. Which oh, is love really it. Okay, it's so weird because escorts are always like in the creative arts or like mental health arts or like nurse or like just yeah. something that takes care of people in a way. I know. And I believe it's because there's so many transferable skills. Oh, yeah. Between sex work and the mental health profession. I would love, uh, my goal actually is to be a, a psychologist offering services to sex workers, to the clients of sex workers, to the romantic partners of sex workers uh, and other like sexual and gender minorities as well. People who are into kink and BDSM. Or even those people you were talking about that are affected by stigma that aren't yeah. a stigmatized person. Yeah. That includes almost the entire planet. So it looks like you're going to have a great pool. Of I think so. <laughs> I definitely think so. And yeah, I mean, there's over the past 10 years, I've, I mean, I've, I've acquired so many skills that are totally transferable to being self-employed as a psychologist. And so, oh, definitely. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on You're right now. Probably like going to be the most resilient ever if no one hires you, which is like the best asset really is not getting beat down. Yeah. <clears throat> so this topic we're talking about this week is, well, just Natalie's life. I guess I, the titles of the week are difficult because it's essentially just someone talking about their life, but it's kind of honing in on what that topic is. And today it's about a collective and motherhood. So I guess we'll start with motherhood. Uh, do you, you shared with me that you are a mommy. I am. I am. My daughter is almost two. Thank you. <laughs> She's almost two. Um, so she was born in early February of 2018. Uh, so yeah, her Valentine's birthday. Day? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, that would have been really nice. Um, but I'm really glad I gave birth when I did because I was very, um, I was very happy to end that pregnancy. <laughs> I was like once, once I was ready to give birth, I was really ready to give birth. And so, yeah, very, very happy. It's an early February birthday for her. Was it the worst uh, pain ever? Oh, you mean my labor experience? Uh-huh. So I um, chose midwifery okay. as opposed to an OB. Um, and I chose midwifery because I really wanted um, to have health care that was really centered on me and centered on my experience as a woman. I wanted to be with a healthcare provider that would respect my birth plan and that would respect kind of what I wanted and how I wanted it. And so I was very attached to having a home birth. So to give birth at home, 
Um, I was very attached to a natural childbirth. And so I did achieve that in the end. Wow. Yeah. So I, because I have, I have a heart condition. Okay. Known as supraventricular tachycardia. And because of that, I wasn't eligible for a home birth because they were a little concerned that if my heart rate was a bit too high at home, that I'd have to have a transfer to a hospital, which I didn't want. So they said, you know, we'll support you if you want to give birth at home, but we'd prefer if you gave birth at the birth center, which is in Ottawa. And um, so so they said, you know, we'd prefer this. And so I said, well, okay, fine. <laughs> so it's the birth safety. Yeah. And I mean, the birth center is beautiful. It has like this big ass jacuzzi tub and a king size bed and like a fireplace and couches. <laughs> and like, it's just, it's really beautiful. It sounds like the honeymoon suite. It is the honeymoon <laughs> for suite. For the baby. Yeah, for the, well, for the mama. Oh my gosh, <laughs> the mama in labor. And um, yeah, so was that the most painful experience ever? That's a really good question. I'd say yes. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting. I mean, it, it was, it was excruciatingly painful, but I read this book that was so um, instrumental in preparing me for childbirth because it basically said, and I kept repeating this like a, like a mantra while I was in early labor and with each contraction. Basically, the book, the only thing I could remember was with every contraction, the pain will be worse and worse. So if you think it's bad now, yeah, stop it's thinking it's the worst. Stop thinking it's the worst because it's going to get worse. Like it's going to be so much worse than what you could possibly imagine. And so it was really fucking painful. And I still had my shit together. And I was like, oh, man, like, <laughs> I cannot imagine what this is supposed to be like later. But I also had a very quick labor. And so, um, you know, like my water broke at four in the morning. I slept until seven or eight which was great yes I know there's this idea that when I sorry so it's Sienna like, gave me this like cocked her head kind of like what the fuck movies look? aren't telling me the truth no oh my <laughs> gosh the media is so wrong about labor so no your water doesn't break and you're not screaming five minutes later like <laughs> you know I'm giving birth fuck my life no 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 so I my water broke and my contractions didn't start until like 8 a.m and then I didn't you know, my contractions were like 10, 15 minutes apart and it felt like a very bad period. So if you imagine like really bad menstrual cramps, that's what my contractions felt like. Really manageable. So I watched a movie. I went out. I like walked around. Just like an average period day. Just like a really bad period day. And then I'd say things really picked up in earnest around 1 p.m., 2 p.m. Where I was like, I can't fucking watch this movie anymore. Fuck my life. Things oh my God. Up in earnest. I know picked up in earnest yeah are you laughing at my like that how was, i talk that was beautiful that was so quirky okay <laughs> but basically what happened is i got in the bath and i didn't know this at the time but if you take a bath when you're in labor it can do one of two things it'll either accelerate labor or it'll slow labor down like the huh. heat okay. relaxes the muscles and that either tells your body to like fucking hurry up or to slow it down and so i took a bath and my body went hurry the fuck up so I was at home in the bath and then I, I like looked at my birth companion and I was like, <gasps> and I like let out this moan grunt. Like I can't repeat it because you'd be it horrified. Was, no was, one will yeah, ever. Animalistic. It was just like pure instinct. Pure instinct. And no one would ever hire me if I tried to <laughs> repeat it. So I won't. But then my doula was called. And then within an hour, I was on my way to the birth center and I gave birth at 7 p.m. 
So it was okay. very fast. Like it went really well. And I was so lucky. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it, it was cool. the most painful experience of my life. Did that, I don't know if this is like non PC to ask this. <laughs> Did it make you, like, enjoy pleasure more to, like, feel crazy pain? No. I don't even think about it that way. Okay. Like, for me, it was really just, like, no. I can't even imagine. Like, there are some women who talk about masturbating during labor as what a, like... The- yeah. So some women talk about like masturbating oh, and I orgasm. Maybe to like make it stop hurting. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, and it's okay. to bring pleasure into the experience. And I fuck that. Like for me and my, I just wanted it to end. Like, but who knows? Like Sienna, if you decide to have children and you're in labor, I might be like doing anything. You might be doing anything. Exactly. I, like you, yeah. you until you're in it, you can't possibly imagine how you're gonna act. <laughs> I want to never know how I acted. I'm gonna black out. Nobody ever tell me how I acted. Well, you know, you don't remember that much. So okay. when you were like, "Was it the most painful thing ever?" I immediately thought, "Oh, I'd like to be a surrogate." Isn't that crazy? What? Why? Um, I really loved being pregnant. Oh, and. Pregnancy lasted nine months and labor for me lasted less than 12 hours. That's true. And I'm like, I'd love to be pregnant again. I don't want the aftermath. I think I'm a one and done. I have my daughter. I don't think I'll have another child, but I'd love to be pregnant again. I'm sure there, I don't want to say people want to impregnate you with their baby, but <laughs> I think that's, the is on the rise. I know, right? <laughs> uh, so yeah, tell me about your decision to have kids then. Um... Or a kid, a daughter. Yeah, yeah, I had a daughter. And I was actually really hoping for a girl, so I'm very happy it worked out the way that it did. The universe knew. The universe knew, exactly. Um, <clears throat> that's a very good question. So up until the age of 27, 28, I was certain I was not going to have children. Oh, wow. That, yeah. You, like, quickly got pregnant after. Yeah, like, well, promptly. when I... <laughs> yes, when I decided I wanted a child, my IUD was out within, like, six months. And I was trying. So it was a very quick process um I just felt like something hit me I don't know if it's the biological clock I don't really want to get into a conversation I about think that it is like biology in your brain that at some point flips know. and it just starts making you think about it I don't know I just felt that I said like I just suddenly felt that I had so much love to give and that I started to think about how I would be a wonderful mother and how like as a person it would be not necessarily unfair to the world. I don't want to put it that way. But like as a young, oh, I don't even know how to describe this. I just felt like I wanted to gift the world with my child, which is like. I swear moms out there are like, uh-huh. Yeah. But I'm like, that's such a weird way of putting it. But I, I really like anyone who's met me and for all my clients out there who've met me and know me. I mean, you know. People know I'm a loving and nurturing person. And so why wouldn't I want to put that like into child rearing, into like raising a mini me? Totally. And of course she'll be very different than me. And I mean, my goodness, like I will lose my shit if she ends up being very conservative. That will be very hard. Actually, I've told friends and family that my worst nightmare is that I raise a child that's not socially conscious in terms of like her effect on the world and i think watching you would be hard to completely go the opposite way i hope so i mean that's i have two worst nightmares and one of them has not materialized so i was really concerned that if i had a child that child would not be physically affectionate my daughter's very affectionate but isn't it in 
in every baby to be affectionate? Not necessarily. Huh. Not necessarily. That was just like a reflection of you most of the time. Yeah, no, no. Actually, they're those little shits are born with their own personalities, you know, <laughs> and they have their own. They got their own stuff going on right from the get go. It's pretty intense. You can tell you're working through a lot of issues right now. <laughs> can you please just hug me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you just decided to have kids and then bam, you had one and now you're good. Yeah. Okay. And so did you work while you were pregnant or yeah. How did you reconcile like being an escort and then wanting to have a kid? Yeah. I mean, for me, there was no reconciliation necessary because there's so many professions where women work while they're pregnant. So there are doctors, so true. engineers, baristas. I mean, any profession, really, any profession where there are women who work, there will be women who work while they're pregnant. So my immediate thought was, well, why would this be any different? What kind of attorney leave am I going to get from my boss? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I actually saved up money. Like when I got pregnant, because I didn't expect, I knew the statistics were good. So 85% of women below the age of 30 get pregnant in their first year. So I knew that there was a good chance I would get pregnant in that first year. Well, the first month I tried getting pregnant is the month I got pregnant. I didn't expect it to happen that fast. I expected, you know, maybe it'll take six months. Like maybe, maybe it'll your body decided it wanted a baby. Exactly. And that sperm must have been really strong as well. Good <laughs> swimmers in there. Good swimmers. And, um, but yeah, so I was pregnant right away. So immediately, not only was I like, okay, I'm going to work while I'm pregnant, but also I need to make like a good income this year, like in the next nine months, because we don't, as sex workers, have a paid maternity leave. Mm-hmm. So I actually saved up enough money for a full year off. I did end up taking more than that, but I saved up for a year and that was great. So working while pregnant was a really positive experience for me. Um, There was only a few clients um, that reacted negatively to my news that I was pregnant, but for the most part, many odds wise are going to be some. Yeah, exactly. And they were actually clients I'd met prior, right? They weren't new clients. They were regulars of mine who were very conservative and and genuinely didn't understand how a woman could choose to continue to work in this industry while like growing a child inside of her while being pregnant. However, you I think you're going to be shocking a lot of people listening and hopefully change their minds. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I never yeah. even thought of that. But I mean, I mean, for me, I, I asked my midwife. So I met my midwife <clears throat> when I was a month and a half pregnant, and. I told her point blank, like, I'm a sex worker. Is there anything I should be concerned about? And she was like, well, no. <laughs> like, she was like, you know, it is perfectly healthy. <laughs> what does that matter? <laughs> yeah, like, it is perfectly healthy and normal to continue to have sex while you're pregnant. And so the fact that you're a sex worker, truthfully, is quite irrelevant. But I'm happy to reassure you anyway. The only question I had for her at some point where I was genuinely concerned was, so... While you're pregnant, there's a lot of things happening in your body hormonally. And when I started to produce colostrum, which is um, breast, it's not breast milk, but it comes from the breast. It's the pre-breast milk milk, and it's really important um, in the first few days of your child's life. When I started to produce colostrum and ultimately my nipples were leaking sometimes and like there was milk coming out, colostrum coming out of my breasts. I had clients that had fantasies of like ejaculating on my breasts and like rubbing their cum all over my boobs and things like that, which I was totally fine with. 
But I, I had this moment of like where I asked my midwife, I was like, is there a risk of sexually transmitted infections if a man ejaculates on these leaky nick like my I was like is this an open is this a source of infection potentially and she was like no like it really is just a exit like there's no entry <laughs> and I, which totally made sense hey to I me. would ask the same question I mean it made sense to me the moment she told me and I kind of felt a little bit foolish but at the same time I was like really happy I asked anyway you know but that was the only thing that I even remotely felt concerned about so the doctor wasn't like you shouldn't for safety or like, i don't no. know what. oh no my midwife was so cool okay. and she it's so interesting because i marched with power which is the local sex workers rights organization um it's known as, as prostitutes of ottawa again no work educate resist so i marched with them in ottawa pride and my midwife was actually right behind us. And she was dressed oh. up as like Call the Midwives, that show on oh, Netflix. yeah, I watched a little bit of that It's so ago. good. So she was dressed up as like a traditional midwife and she was right behind me. And I was marching in this like awesome red dress with power. Uh, it was totally fantastic. I would have loved to see a picture. <laughs> I have a picture. I can okay, totally, yeah, we're doing not with that. her, but I'll send you a picture of me in Pride. So you didn't see, like, I'm sure you did get quite a bit of requests for, like, people that had a desire to see, you know, a pregnant woman. Because I don't, like, it's such a rare time. Like, we're usually not pregnant as women. Like, it's such a brief time period. Did you see anyone that kind of, like, was super into that? Or was, what was the normal, did you see people super into that, like, fetishizing it? So I had a preference for not seeing people who were requiring my services or asking for my services specifically because I was pregnant. So I wasn't interested in providing pregnancy fetish services at all. But what if it's not fetish and they're just into it because they think it's beautiful? That was very different. Okay, but that's not a fetish. Yeah, but that's not a fetish, right. exactly. So people who, like in terms of it being a fetish, people who wanted to see me to like be my birth companion or practice labor. <laughs> Or, like, wanted to fantasize about, like, it being their child and I was their partner and they were there to assist with labor. I mean, I get the role play, but you're actually pregnant. That's pretty heavy. Uh, yeah, it really was. And I was not interested in that. So having escorted prior to that for about eight or nine years, well, actually, no, less than that, eight years, I suppose. So having escorted prior to that for about eight years, I was really only interested in seeing people who were interested in seeing me and I just simply happened to be pregnant at the time. I got it. But there were people who messaged me um, saying like, wow, you know, Natalie, like I've always been really interested in meeting you, but I'm even more interested in meeting you now that you're pregnant. I myself have children, um, but my partner at the time wasn't really interested in intimacy, but I found I her. I totally get that. I wonder about that. Yeah. yeah. So I had a lot of clients reach out just, just because they wanted to relive their own experiences of <laughs> so having beautiful. children and they wanted to experience what they may or may you know some of them expressly stated that they couldn't be intimate with their partners for whatever reason and were very understanding they were like my wife had a very uncomfortable pregnancy or my partner at the time you know was really uncomfortable with x y and z are you comfortable with that is it okay if I do x y and z you know this kind of thing and, and I was very happy to provide that because that was very different than like a pregnancy fetish per se I don't want to say it's like therapy but it sounds a little bit like therapy <laughs> totally totally and some of them just really love um, 
like some of the clients I saw just really loved the pregnant form and having been pregnant now, I mean, yeah, my tits were fucking fantastic. <laughs> like, Oh my gosh. Like I used to have bra, like I was a very small chested woman prior to pregnancy and I still am, but prior to pregnancy, they were even smaller and like, wow, did I ever have like full, like very full breasts? It was intense. They're, they're like bigger now forever. Yes, they're bigger now forever. Okay. They're, they hang lower than they did. <laughs> and I'm actually totally fine with that because Aww. I, no, like I look at myself no, in I the like mirror. That. I really do. It's like, part of your life story. It's it you. is. Like I fed my child for a year. You made a fucking person. I made a fucking person. Like the lungs. Like yeah. the stomach. You made all of it. I made all of her. And yeah. you know what's really, you know what really fucks with me in a good way? She was born with all of her eggs for a future generation. Yeah. I, ne- I never even thought about that. Sorry, it's just for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the cycle of life. You know? <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> it's just incredible because women are like, we have, like, we're born every That's menstrual true. cycle. We're born we- with all the eggs we're ever going to have and they just go away. Exactly. Every menstrual cycle, you know? And actually, okay, so yeah. when I have clients who come, okay, <laughs> like, I'm kind of like, I almost like, and I've said this to some of my clients, so you're going to laugh if you listen to this, but I'm like, oh, look at all those unborn children. <laughs> No, I do that all the time. <laughs> because like, yeah, and every time I have a menstrual cycle, I wave down the toilet. Yeah. I'm like, bye-bye, unborn no, wait, egg. That's not weird. I do that okay. all the time. <laughs> well, I've only started doing that after birth. Oh, like, no, I, I totally get that. Yeah, it's like, it's fucking crazy to like think that like... There's a thousand babies in there. Maybe it's like a million. There's maybe, so much sperm incoming. Yeah, maybe a million. That's like, and I mean, obviously not all those swimmers would succeed. Yeah. But there's at least like, maybe there's one that would have succeeded, you know? Each time. That's, Each a, time. that's a lot of babies. Totally. Down the toilet, you know? I mean, my body gets pretty mad at me every time I don't have a baby. Oh, yeah. Your that's where that pain bad. is. It's yeah. like your body like slapping you. Like, what's the matter with you? Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be pregnant right now. Wow. <laughs> Look at us go. Our brains evolved, but not our vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this tangent we're on. It's awesome. <laughs> I don't mind this podcast. is for fun. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so... I don't even know if this is the right way to phrase this. I wrote what is escorting like postpartum, but I'm not even sure if that's grammatically accurate. Uh, so I didn't actually escort postpartum. So the postpartum period is usually between the first three weeks and 12 months after a woman gives birth. Okay. And I started working when I was 19 months postpartum. So okay. I only just started working again um, in September. So a couple of months ago. And there's a few reasons for that. So I'm happy to touch on that. Um, I was initially ready to start working earlier but when I was seven months postpartum so there's a story to this and it's a bit sad so a little bit of a caveat here um so I was uh, a milk donor for my best friend so my best friend also had a child our children are five days apart so wow yeah in early February we both had children and I was a milk donor for her son. So she had a baby boy and she was able to produce. So I produced a lot of milk. She didn't produce a lot of milk. That's where those big, beautiful boobs came from. Oh, yeah. Nice tits. Seriously. <laughs> so she um, was able to provide a half supply of milk for her child and I was able to produce more. So I provided the other half. So I was producing for a baby and a half, basically. And so I would pump 
and then give her the milk for donation. So we saw each other three, four times a week. I had a room at her house for my daughter. She had a room at my house for her son. We saw each other all the time. And it was really amazing for me to share like my mother, her journey with her. And when we were both seven months postpartum, she died by suicide. Oh my God. And it was probably the most difficult thing I've ever experienced in my life. To You had no idea. I had a slight idea. So it, it didn't, I mean, it came as a surprise. I think suicide always comes as a surprise. Yeah. But she was experiencing depression. Um, she had a history of bipolar disorder and wasn't taking her medication because she wanted to breastfeed her son. Mm. And you're really vulnerable in the postpartum period. Like as women at that time in our early 30s who were very accustomed to doing essentially whatever we want, whenever we want, to suddenly be shackled with a child. And I know shackled is very negative it's very negative to say that but you've got to stay there for 18 years now kind of yeah and it is a form of like if you're breastfeeding and you know it's complex but damn you basically are shackled to that child for a certain period of time like I co-slept she co-slept like we were yeah literally like attached to those babies for those seven months and we were together and we had our mom fuel glasses full of wine and chatted and provided each other with support but you know like she had extra challenges that I didn't have and she experienced depression in August and she died in September and we were seven months postpartum so it was a really like it completely that's really heavy. It's very and heavy. Really sad because I'm sure she was also really, you know, she over the moon a- about her baby. Totally. She was an amazing person. And imagine being in such a bad place where you genuinely believe that the your son, that your child will be better off without you. It just sounds like a lot of isolation and just yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's where she was at and she died and it left me in a really bad place. And so I can truthfully acknowledge now that I experienced not clinical depression, but I don't know if I've ever been so sad in my life. Like the loss of identity, adjusting to motherhood, the loss of my friend. And that was really hard for me. So while I was ready to go back to work, like to start seeing clients again at that time, I wasn't ready when she died. And I had also just started my new degree in psychology. Like she died two weeks after I started my program and it was just like it was such a like I miss her like I think of her every day she's such a beautiful person I think of her son like I think of everything that her and her family I do yeah I do still see him and I have a really good relationship with her mother but it's hard you know like I I don't imagine it's a relationship that will last much longer to be honest because it brings a lot of pain it doesn't bring much joy to my life to maintain those relationships. So I truthfully don't think I will for much longer. But um, but yeah, because that happened and because of the grief that I experienced and then as many of you will know in my blog, and I don't know if you read it, Sienna, and it's totally okay if you don't. I think I've read a few of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I learned basically a few months after my friend died that my mother had cancer. Yeah, I did see that. Exactly. So it was like two major things back to back. So it's not surprising that I took almost two years off, I think, before I started working again. I needed to feel like I was in a place, like in a good place, you know, like I don't, it didn't feel worth it to me. You know, the, 
the it just didn't feel worth it to me until this until September to start working again. And that's also when my daughter started daycare. So I spent the I mean obviously there was, was a correlation she, was there. Was she the one like that was just hating when you left or was oh she my like, gosh hey, of mommy. course oh no she was like bawling her eyes out and i was the one that was like ciao like <laughs> i was so happy to leave her at daycare people were like you're gonna you're gonna cry it's gonna be really hard on you like be compassionate with yourself like you're probably gonna like you know go into bed and like cry all day and i so didn't I took a bath and I read a book and I was like, I am paying these amazing people to take care of her. I trust them 100%. She just has to get used to it because mama needs some me time. You know? Yeah. And then when she has a baby, she'll get it. Exactly. From one of those eggs already in there. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. But yeah, so I just started working again in September. Cool. And it's Thanks going for really sharing well. all that. That's yeah. pretty intense. But I think that there'll be a lot of people that can, you know, relate to the story. Yeah. It's nice to so. talk about the hard stuff, too. It Honestly, it's yeah. Refreshing. Like, yeah. Having having a kid was the hardest thing I've ever done. But I also can't really disentangle having a kid with my friend's death, with my mother's cancer. Like, I can't disentangle all those things. It's like, just they're just the one period of yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. It's all in the postpartum period. So. Well, uh, now it's going to be a smooth sailing. I think it was three years, four years. You're, that's I think that's what it is. If it comes in three, you get three happy years. I yeah. just made that up for you. Okay, thank you. Actually, I'm going to make it ten. Okay, make it ten because I think <laughs> like I'd prefer ten over three <laughs> if I if I have a choice in the matter. Deal. I'm telling the universe right now. And thanks. Uh, do you happen to have any other escort mommies or know any other escort mommies? Um. I do. And so when I announced my pregnancy and I announced it on Twitter first, when I first announced my pregnancy, wow. yeah, there's hundreds of people that reached out to me from all over the world telling me that they had worked while they were pregnant, that they oh, had that children. Oh, so cool. Yes. So, so many people from all over the world reached out and were like, if you need any help, if you need advice or guidance, or if you just need someone to vent to, I'm here. Like so much solidarity from so many different people. Uh, I was going to ask, what's the community's response been? Uh, do other escorts offer up babysitting that you know here? Do you know any <laughs> local mommies? You have like mommy escort group? <laughs> no mommy <laughs> escort group. Um, so within the collective, so Ottawa Independent Companions, there are actually a lot of mothers um, that that work. Um, but not everyone is out about being um, yeah, I a mom, that. which is I 100% respect that. But people have disclosed privately whether they do or don't have children. And so I do know a lot of moms actually within the collective, but then also more broadly, um, you know, having busy lives themselves, not many of them have offered babysitting services, but there are other people within the collective that have offered um, to babysit so at any time. So it is a good community. Pardon? So escorting is a good community. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, the, I don't know what the word is in English. Entraide. The way that we help each other, you know. The, yeah, the support. I don't know if it's not support, but just... Yeah, solidarity, support, services. Like, we got each other's back, basically. Yeah. Yeah. What have have you told any moms that aren't in the sex work industry about this? Or what's that minefield like? It's a pretty big minefield, and it's one I'm still navigating. So when my daughter was first born, I started attending a postpartum support group. And at the time, I really didn't feel it was necessary for me to disclose that I was a sex worker because I wasn't working at the time and it didn't really feel relevant because most of the things that we were talking about 
had nothing to do with the jobs that we had and everything to do. It wasn't that first question. What do you do? Not at all. Because I mean, honestly, when you first have a kid, it's like, was your labor traumatic? Do you need to debrief about your labor experience? How is breastfeeding going or not going? Or have you decided not to breastfeed at all? Um, What's your relationship with your partner like? Because any child is a bomb in a relationship. So really the topics of conversation in the postpartum period have nothing to do with your job. That's cool. No one talks about their previous lives because we're all just sleep deprived, hormonal, unshowered, disgusting blobs that like hate our partners and hate our husbands and i can't wait (laughs) yes and like hate everything in life and like don't even like our children because they're just like these sleeping pooping disruptive things blobs in our lives and we're like what the fuck have we done it's just like this like yeah it's really intense it's pretty rare that you meet moms in the postpartum period at least for me and I met I don't know like maybe 50 let's say who will even think work is a relevant topic like no one thinks work is a relevant topic of information but as you know the months progressed and as you kind of eventually see the the world again and you're like oh like my kid can sit up and they're kind of feeding themselves a little bit and like, oh, look, there's a window there. And what's out that window? You know, <laughs> like as you kind of get out of the bubble of the postpartum period, then, yeah, work becomes a bit more relevant. And it was tricky. So I outed myself over drinks with a mom that I got along with really well. And I looked at her point blank and I like was intentionally? like intentionally. Yeah, I okay. outed myself intentionally. And I said, this is a make it or break it statement. And I want you to know that your reaction to what I'm about to tell you is really important. So think about it. And I said, you know, like I have sex for money. Like I'm, I'm an escort and this is what I do for a living. And I'm thinking about going back to work similar to how she was at the time thinking about feeling ready to go back to work and wanting to go back to work. And she was just like, yeah, cool. You know? And, and she was totally fine with it. And then there's another mom um, that I told as well. So I'm only told two moms And I'd say we're a cohort of around 20 people. So I've only told two of them so far. And um, I told this other mom, and she's actually quite religious. And so I was a little bit concerned about how that would go down. But I had a feeling that she would be okay with it. And she totally was. So she was very... They've already built that bond with you in a way. And so they can't alienate you as a bad influence when they've literally seen you not be precisely someone you know is a sex worker you're too late you already know them and now the label doesn't matter i have a feeling that's what happened definitely i do have a feeling that's what happened because both of them took it really well and you know i haven't told anyone so my daughter's in daycare now and i'm not close enough to any of the um parents yet why would you just blurt out personal information really well exactly i mean precisely (laughs) so i mean is it really relevant like, it's not always relevant for people to know. Like, do people have to know, you no, know? No, no, not at all. Exactly. So, I mean, I'd love to tell people if it's relevant, but I'm not going to, um, like, proactively blurt it out while people are talking about, like, a chickpea recipe. I'm or getting like, this, like, metaphor of why would you go up to someone and be like, so I get, like, diarrhea when I have Indian food. It'd be like, hey, 
exactly. like okay but why do i have to know that exactly exactly it's like not like basically being a sex worker doesn't have to be at the foremost you know transparency cent- of like it your does- entire identity exactly like i'm also a mom and i'm a friend i'm, I'm a sister i'm a this i'm a that an like, advocate an advocate exactly so no one has kind of questioned your abilities as a mom because of you being in this industry that know about it no no it's really not come up and i th- think to a certain extent it's because i show no vulnerability around that do you think if it was like a legal situation though because of whatever happened uh someone would look at you and think she's a sex worker so we have to take a second look at this and we don't know if she's a capable mother so while i was pregnant there was one sex worker who reached out to me because her own children had been taken away from her Mm. through the children's in society In in canada and sex work was a factor for her and so she was like you really have to be careful um, about disclosing that you're a sex worker, about like working while pregnant. She was like, I would seriously advise against it, et cetera. So I'm kind of really out there. So I just called CAS, literally. Okay. I called them and I was like, so I'm a sex worker and I'm working while I'm pregnant. And I'm curious to know if on your end there would be any issues postpartum, like once I give birth. And <laughs> the CAS worker was like, what the right like like she was just like okay let me put you on hold for a let moment. me just wrap my brain around this fucking call yes that's actually exactly what happened and so she put me on hold for a moment and then she came back and she said you know and she asked for my information and i gladly provided it i didn't like i have honestly i'm kind of like listen let's let's do this and so um she said you know well you know, are you an alcoholic? I was like, no. She was like, do you use drugs? I'm like, occasionally, right? Like I smoke pot sometimes. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, occasionally. Like I smoke pot once in a while. I was like, not while pregnant, obviously, because the research on that is very um, in its infancy and there's not enough mm-hmm. conclusive evidence to know what the effects of marijuana use are on the fetus. And so I didn't while I was pregnant. But um, she she was basically like, well, I mean, I don't see how this is relevant. She was like, you know, um, how does she say it? She said, do you intend on seeing clients in front of your daughter? And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And she was like, well, do you intend on like having clients come to your home? Do you intend on having sex with clients in front of your daughter? I mean, and I was like, fuck is that? I know. And I was like, no, I plan on traumatizing every child that can get my in within my purview. Yes. And then, and furthermore, I also want to state that like, I could have sex in front of my daughter now and she doesn't really understand. Like, I'm sure like there are parents, parents have accidentally done that. Yeah. Not even accidentally. There are parents <laughs> who like sleep with their children and have sex in front of their children. We're talking like infants here. There's no like, anyway, so we have to demystify all of that and talk about like, well, why is sex perceived as bad here? But whatever. But I, I reassured her. I was like, listen, I have a workspace that's outside of my home. You know, if I were to see clients, my daughter would be in daycare or be with a nanny or, you know, she would be in a different situation. Like She'd she- be where mom is not because mom's working. Well, precisely. She'd be in daycare just like other moms who work. And so she asked me a whole bunch of questions like that. And then afterwards she was like, you know, no, there's no issue here she was like the issue for us is is your child in danger and she's obviously not in danger and so there's no well then what was the other mom talking about then that's obviously not true well it's not necessarily like i don't know what that other mom's situation was i still think we get labeled as being bad mothers from the get-go and then we have to like prove that we're not but we start at the guilty uh, of course yeah it's like the whore madonna complex it's the you know it's it's this idea that you know we're somehow damaged 
And we are, but so are you. Yes, exactly. We're all damaged <laughs> in our own ways. And that's why we hire psychologists. Or sex workers. <laughs> or sex workers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do you plan on telling your kids one day? Your, do- your one daughter one day? Yeah, my one daughter one day. I really want to. I really do. You think and maybe like puberty is an appropriate age? I don't or know. Because, yeah, I don't know. Lying, I wanna it starts f- to take its toll once they get older. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to tell her soon like I want to tell her in age appropriate ways and so I found a book um and I don't remember the name of it right oh now my God, you could write this book for mommies I could yeah and it's all about um labor right so it's just about it's actually about explaining work and about explaining labor to children in a really accessible way so it's like all mommies and daddies and parents use their bodies to care for their children And like using their bodies, like, you know, some people wear uniforms to be a pilot or nurses or this or strippers, right? So it's kind of like this erotic dance. It's a great way to kind of like to look at show what stigma is and how you shouldn't point single anyone out because they're different. I think there's like a huge opportunity there. I think so, too. And it looks like a good book because it's all about like how we use our bodies to provide for our children and the outfits that we wear. That's to beautiful. provide for Do you know our children. What it's called? I forget. I'm having a moment. That's it's okay. totally That's on okay. my Twitter. We've talked about a lot of stuff. Yeah. Look uh, at her Twitter. Yeah, it's on it's on Twitter. And her. I can I can email it to you. And I have the book. Actually, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes if you tell oh, me. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll for sure. And it's it's really good. And and I just I struggle with like I need to do more research and learn more about how to talk to my daughter about sex. About how to talk to my daughter about consent and about feminism, about equality and justice. And then when it comes to sex work specifically, yeah, I mean, I need to figure out how I'm going to tell her about that. But I want to. I want to be really upfront. I think just emphasizing that people assume things about me based on a label and they don't know me is like a huge place because like she's probably seen she'll probably will see that happen all the time and then you just go off that and show why that's bad and she'll be like yeah i've seen that be bad i get it yeah i'm like you know making this best scenario ever in my mind (laughs) i have no idea that's gonna be how it transpires i don't know because i also don't like i also fear a situation where i tell her in an inappropriate way or in a way that she doesn't understand and there's no real research on this is there no and then what happens if i tell her and then she goes to school and tells her friends and then what if her friends tell her teacher and then what if her teacher tells other parents and then it it's like playing telephone where you tell a message to your child but then by the time that message gets to other parents or the teacher or other students it's been completely twisted, right? Based on stigma, based on misunderstandings. Colloquialism. Colloquialism, right? And like, basically, I could tell my daughter I'm a hairdresser. And by the time the teacher hears about it, it's like I'm some hitman, right? Like scissor hands. Yeah, exactly. Like, who knows? So I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm still thinking about it, you know, and she's not yet two. So I have time to think about it. You've got some time. And you also have time to write that book. Yeah, I do. A combo book. I think it would help like a lot of people. I think so too. I'd have to ask other moms whether they've told their kids, you know, Mm -hmm. and get some advice around that. I don't know. So in the midst of all this mommy talk, I got a little excited and uh, yeah, I didn't actually let you finish answering that. Uh, Tell me about your background and childhood experiences and whatnot. Yeah. So 
I self-identify as white trash. <laughs> like actually. <laughs> I grew up um, in a trailer park. Oh, love it. Yes. Uh, so I grew up in a trailer park. My mom actually still lives in the trailer park where I grew up. Um, it's a really beautiful trailer park, I suppose, as far as trailer parks go. Um, and it really was your typical, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. Like the houses are like, it's not even houses, it's trailers, right? But they're like row, it's like rows upon rows of trailers and a park in the middle for the children and like dilapidated. I feel like I, I can perfectly picture that. Yes, exactly. So it's like Trailer Park Boys or whatever that show it's is. It's a hilarious show. It's and Canadian. Good, yes, I know. I know. And it, I actually really identify with it. <laughs> and so there's a lot of people on social assistance in some way, shape or form on disability. My mom uh, is a survivor of domestic violence. And so there was domestic violence in my household while I was growing up. And she divorced my father, who my biological father, who was abusive when I was 10. And that's when we moved into the trailer park because... Um, my mother also experienced financial abuse. And so when she separated from my father, when she left him for her, it really was like a life or death situation. It was the question of like saving her own life and the life of her children or dying. Like she felt she was dying. And so when she left, she actually had no money like in her name, no credit cards in her name. Um, she had a job, but her job wasn't transferable into Quebec. So she had been working in the province of Ontario and then moved to Quebec. And so she needed a new license as a nurse. She was working as a nurse at the time. And that was a very complicated, stressful affair for our family. But yeah, I grew up really poor. So from the ages of 10 until I moved out on my own, essentially, my diet really consisted of a lot of sugar and a lot of carbohydrates. So surviving on rice, surviving on pasta, like surviving on white bread and whatever cheapest form of nutrition was available. This is probably TMI, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think it's really important. I was chronically constipated because mm. my main source of fiber was non-existent. I survived on like canned vegetables and pasta and so there was actually a lot of knowledge in my school at the high school I was at at the time that I had digestive problems and that I had issues with constipation and so I had this special pass so if I had to go to the bathroom I could go to the bathroom at any time really yeah because you know when you gotta go you gotta go and if you're a constipated kid you have to take advantage of those opportunities you know and uh, eventually the nurse at my school find found out that my mother was struggling so much financially and I at that point um was able to access food at the cafeteria for free so the nurse was like this is unacceptable you would you need at least one nutritious meal a day and so I had a pass so the cafeteria I met with the cafeteria lady so she would know my face and then I just skipped the cash register I'd get my food and then oh, I would just skip nice. yeah it was really great actually when I think about it now and as a result of that experience as well my mother was able to access Christmas hampers and like food hampers during the holidays um in general and my mom carried a lot of shame around that she yeah. was very embarrassed to have to access that and then simultaneously very grateful that we were able to access that and I had friends who were quite rich in this school, who would take me school shopping in September. So like, you know, they never told my mom, but my mom knew. But, you know, as they were shopping for their own children, they'd, they'd, they'd buy doubles, right, for me. That's beautiful. Yeah, which was great, which is why I had to work full time 
when I was bartending, when I started university, because university is really expensive and I had to pay for all of my expenses myself. So that's ultimately also why I became an escort, because the money was better than bartending. So I pursued an undergraduate degree in criminology. What is that? Criminology. It's like the study of law. And I did it from a sociological perspective. So the study of crime and the law and deviance. I just didn't know that was an undergrad degree. Yeah, criminology. So it's, it's, it's really just the study, the study of all things related to deviance. It seems like just the precursor to law school, doesn't it? Not necessarily. So there are criminologists, so crime trends and things like that. So I did that as an undergrad. And then I did a master's degree in sociology as well. And when I became a sex worker, I joined the Board of Directors of Power, which is a local sex workers' rights organization in Ottawa, which stands for Prostitutes of Ottawa Gatineau Work Educate Resist. So I was on their board of directors for six years. And then after my master's degree, which was in sociology, I um, got a job uh, for the Global Network of Sex Work Projects, which cool. is... and that's yeah. based in Ottawa. No, not based in Ottawa. It's based in Scotland. Okay, in I was going to be very surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, it's based in the UK. Okay. So I was hired um, as a full-time staff member, but essentially as a consultant based in Canada. And I did a lot of traveling for that organization, which was great. So, so cool. Yeah, so I interacted with sex workers in Kenya and Kiev and Ukraine and Brazil and South Africa, like... There was basically, it was an organization that um, fought for the rights of sex workers, that fought to uphold the voices of sex workers and to ensure that sex workers' human rights and health rights were respected. So it was honestly my entire career, like my entire adult life has been around sex workers' access to justice, sex workers' access to rights and healthcare systems and justice in general. And that's great for me. Like I just feel... I don't know. It's so much a part of my identity. I don't want to cut off this train of thought, but like, how did you find the differences based on the countries of the sex worker rights? Yeah. Di- what do you mean by differences? Like uh, from the sex workers in Kenya, how is there access to like, I guess just more rights for sex workers or how is their health compared to like Kiev compared to like Brazil? Like how yeah. different or similar were they? I feel like the fight for sex workers' rights is similar in different countries. Um, everyone globally advocates for decriminalization for because the model. Because of the UN? Not because of the UN, because of the model that exists in New Zealand, right? Like, New Zealand okay. has decriminalization since 2003. It's the Prostitution Reform Act from 2003, which... Um, is the New Zealand law that decriminalized statutes of the criminal code that made the lives of sex workers less safe, right? So they removed all of the barriers to accessing health services and social justice and uh, laws that made it difficult for them to like criminally charge their clients in court if they violated their consent or if there was like fraudulent interactions with them or if managers kind of fucked you over and agencies and stuff like that. So they removed all of those laws And then consulted with over 800 sex workers in New Zealand to um, create legislation that was promoting the rights of sex workers. They did it in, that's such a key point that they collaborated with sex workers to create an alternative to criminalizing. That should be step one, really. Oh my God, of course. Yeah, consulting sex workers, consulting us on anything relating to us is like the most important piece of any 
law reform. So we can definitely speak. It's the whole like nothing about us without us. Could you speak, I don't know if you could, to why the Nordic model potentially is not the best option? Oh my God, fuck yeah. Okay. You want me to talk about that? Please do. Okay. So there are three models that exist currently in the world that uh, regulate sex work. There's the decriminalized model, which is the model that's in New Zealand. So the Prostitution Reform Act from 2003. There is a criminalized model, like in the United States, where it's just flat out illegal. And then there's the Nordic model or the Swedish model or the end-demand model, which is otherwise known as the Nordic model of sex work law reform, which is also called asymmetrical criminalization, or it criminalizes the clients of sex workers. So we actually have that in Canada that also exists in France. It exists in other countries in Europe. And the first place that it was ever conceived of was in Sweden. Um, But it also exists in Norway and Denmark, I believe, at this point. Um, So the end-demand model is really premised on this idea that all clients of sex workers are perpetrators of violence, that all sex workers, all women, like sex workers, first of all, in that model are only women. There are no male sex workers, no trans sex workers. So the women are exploited, are victims of violence. We are perceived as having no agency under that model of sex work law reform. It's the foundation of the stance, really. It really is the foundation of the stance, this idea that we have no agency. And it's perceived that way for an interesting reason, right? There's this idea that under patriarchy, right? Like Sweden is very much a feminist country. It's a particular form of feminism. But there is some beautiful ideas coming out of Sweden around feminism. Um, So feminists in Sweden and in um, Scandinavian countries in general have this idea that if patriarchy didn't exist, if women were not oppressed under patriarchy, that we wouldn't sell our bodies because they really do perceive it that way, that we sell our bodies, that we're not selling our time under capitalism, right? The way that you and I, Sienna, might understand this, but that we're selling our bodies, that there's something inherently dangerous, inherently degrading about the fact that we're using our bodies in this way under patriarchy. And I mean, like, pro- like I just, I want to actually acknowledge here that patriarchy does exist. Yeah, but it oppresses everyone. Yes, it precisely. It oppresses everyone. And here's the thing. So patriarchy exists, but so does capitalism. All right. So does capitalism. And so do other forms of systemic oppression. There are so many forms of systemic oppression that exist. And I would love to say that Siena tomorrow, there's going to be a revolution. Tomorrow, the revolution is going to be here and we're going to like down with capitalism and down with patriarchy and we're going to live in a different society tomorrow. There'll be new issues in that society though, you know. Of course, of course. But that's also just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen tomorrow because we're not at a time and place right now where there's going to be a revolution tomorrow. Not of that nature anyway. Not of that nature, exactly. So in the meantime, in this shitty system, that we live in because it is a shitty system it's a shitty system that oppresses people of color it's a shitty system that oppresses indigenous people it's a shitty system that oppresses women it's a shitty system that's misogynistic and it oppresses trans people or non-binary people in this system what can we do 
in the here and now that will make people's lives better. Of course, we want to work towards a resolution, like a revolution. But in the meantime, what do we do to make people's lives better? Well, one answer to that is decrim. We decriminalize sex work to make sex work safer, to make sure that sex workers can access justice without stigma, without discrimination, that sex workers can access justice without fear of criminalization, that sex workers can access health services without fear of stigma, discrimination, or criminalization, right? Like, what can we do right now that actually makes our lives better? So I'd love to say, yeah, down with patriarchy, that's going to happen tomorrow, but it's not, right? So in the meantime, what do we do? A really big part of this that bothers me about it not being decriminalized at the moment is that I feel a lot more people are entering sex work and are not calling it sex work to get around feeling bad about it, still being the stigmatized and... You're talking about sugar babies and stuff? Yes. Yeah. And uh, people don't consider that sex work, but it is. And then the result is you get taken advantage of, abused, and it's gross. And then we're left with a lot of broken people, but that are engaging in this. Um, I think that's really happening right now. It's not just something that affects a very small amount of people. I think there's a huge amount of people, and you just don't know how many people it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely interacted with some sugar babies and with people who are engaging in sex work without calling it sex work. And I think that has a lot to do, like you said, around stigma related to the industry. And that they know that the men are going to get in trouble if they call it what it is. Um, And then, yeah, I think it's just resulting in a lot more broken people than there needs to be. Mm -hmm. And we're already oppressed, as you say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so complex. Like, I can't blame women because here's the thing with sugar babies or with people who aren't necessarily calling it what it is. They tend to be younger also. That's why with, they'll do it. Exactly. Do you agree with that in terms the, of like... There's a level of I don't know what's normal or mm-hmm. what is expected or what other people are doing. And this person says do this because everyone else does. And you're like, all right, I don't know. You're yeah. telling me this, so I'm going to do it. And then after like a year, you're like, wait, hang on. Nobody else does this. Why did I do that? And then you feel super violated. Mm-hmm. And you just carry the shame around with you. Yeah. And if instead you looked and you were like, this is legal. If I do this, oh, here's these resources. You can actually resource be like, oh, that's not what people do. Oh, I'm not going to do that. I know what my rights are because I have some period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have very. So I wrote a post about arrangements. Uh, I have very strong feelings about arrangements, about people who pursue them. I feel, I mean, truthfully, I, I and the I'm just going to. intentions aren't always bad, but the reality. No, I think the intentions of some men who seek arrangements some. are exploitative. Yes, yeah, some. I believe, I mean, when I look at the escort recommendation board, uh, recommend, uh, no, Sorry, when I look at TURB, for example, the Toronto Escort Review Board, there are threads and there have been threads in the past about the cheapest sugar babies, about those that you can extract the most from. I've heard about this, yeah. About those who, um, you know, if you contact them at certain periods of the month when they're more or less broke, more or less vulnerable, that you'll be able to derive and access more services than at other times of the month. Um, Or ones where they say this person's an escort, but if you go through this website, then you can get them for a cheaper rate. Correct. 
And so I feel like uh, there are certain websites out there that attract sugar babies to advertise their services, but they keep them... um, Um, they keep them isolated from one another so that they can't actually talk to each other about bad clients. No, just see their blog posts about how amazing being a sugar baby is from the company. Precisely. I mean, it's too much. I know. So they can't talk to each other. They can't compare rates and services. They can't compare or talk about like, you know, give each other advice and tips on how to do things well, you know? And that in and of itself, like these websites, these again, websites owned by god knows who right these third party agent like i know who owns that well i've seen their profile i know me too fucking outrageous i know i know but we don't want to talk about that well i think it's hilarious that you know everyone fucks for free promiscuity is made fun of and even kind of put first and foremost in a lot of comedy movies like oh she's such a hoe she's going at that d do you fuck another guy tonight anna (laughs) are you whore and like that's fine but like don't you dare get paid for it i know it makes no sense to me it's archaic it really is it it really is archaic and it stems from a very traditional view. It stems from trying to control people because there's control nothing, women. Well, no, there's just nothing more threatening to order than a liberated person, especially a sexually liberated person, because they won't fall into line. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just stems from that. That's why they had to stop giving people LSD, giving letting people have LSD because they wouldn't go to war. It's just, I feel like it's the same idea. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, you talked about all that. What yeah. you took in school. What. All of it, yeah. And Kaya just messaged me, so she'll be here in like five minutes. All right, let's take a five minute break. Five minute break. Did we do it? Did we fix all the problems in the world? (laughs) Totally. Thanks, Natalie. So Natalie and I invited another companion, the lovely Kaya Sophia, over right then to talk about Ottawa Independent Companions, or OIC, a collective in Ottawa of which these two ladies are founders. I completely forgot to do the usual fun closing questions with Natalie in the moment, so please forgive that indiscretion. This week is a little unique, as now I've also uploaded a second mini-episode featuring these two ladies explaining what OIC is for everyone. I've attached Natalie's website and Twitter handle in the show notes in case you'd like to get in touch with her or follow her. I've also attached links to the sex worker advocacy groups uh, Natalie mentioned, uh, that book she couldn't remember, and something else. So if you wanted to look up anything Natalie talked about in this episode, she supplied me with all the links, so please take a look. Up next, the OIC special. <laughs> 